1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
4: Hello, my name is Jim Cavallaro, Executive Director of the University Network for Human Rights. The discussion you're about to hear is part of the series by the University Network for Human Rights with New Books Network. And what we're hearing today is a discussion that we're about to start in a conference, between human rights experts and academics in the state of Connecticut, and human rights experts from the German state of Baden-Württemberg. It's part of a consortium. And we're going to discuss issues in human rights, but in particular today, War, Peace, Humane, a book by Sam Moyne, and the current conflict that's raging in Ukraine. So let me... Uh, present the three speakers. My, as I said, my name is Jim Cavallaro. I, I, I teach also at Yale and Wesleyan. I'm the executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. I'm, I'm going to mo- moderate the discussion. Excuse me. And we'll hear from uh, Sam Moyne. Uh, Sam Moyne is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School, and also a professor of history at Yale. And he's written a number of books in the field of human rights. The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Uh, Not Enough, he writes in other areas as well. He's also written the book uh, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. We're going to talk about that book today. And we'll do it with the help of two scholars uh, from Europe, and they're both German. One is uh, Celia Wernicke. She's a professor of public international law, comparative law, and ethics of law at the University of Freiburg. And she's published widely and is uh, considered a leading uh, uh, voice in jurisprudence and international law in Germany, as is Frauke Lachenmann. She's an international lawyer who holds a PhD in English literature and, among other accomplishments, is the general editor of the Max Planck Encyclopedia of Comparative Constitutional Law with Oxford University Press. What we're going to discuss today uh, is humane and the crisis in Ukraine. In other words, we're going to look at America's humane war, which is part of the thesis that Sam Moyne defends in the book Humane, but also what that book and its lessons have to say about what's happening in Ukraine, and then we'll have a broader discussion. So without more, let me start, and uh, uh, we'll begin with questions to the panel. It's a very impressive panel, and we have a lot to talk about. And I thought we'd begin by asking Uh, Sam, if you don't mind, uh, the elevator explanation of the argument in humane. Take five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you feel comfortable with, but set it out for those of us who
0: who have not read this book. I have, but I have to have. Sure. So uh, thanks, Jim, and everyone. Uh, Really an honor to be included. We agreed to have this session before the latest Great Power War began. I don't think we should, you know, dwell on anyone's obscure and overtaken book uh, for more than a few minutes before pivoting into the most general discussion we all want to have about uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, and then having as, as, as contentious a debate as, as we can, because I think there is one to have. Um, I'm going to begin, you know, trying to take up Jim's invitation, but also try to make the, the arguments of the book um, somehow relevant past the sell-by date for our own moment. And I think a, an appropriate place to begin is with the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg, 1945-6, in part because lots of Americans and Germans were involved in it, just like in this consortium. Uh, and there's a lot debatable about what went down there and at, at the Tokyo Tribunal soon after but there's one precious insight that i argue in the book we lost in the meantime and that's the priority of control of aggressive war at nuremberg it was the crime of crimes the supreme crime as robert jackson our supreme court justice here on leave, insisted in his brilliant opening statement and actually i think we should revisit the reasons our ancestors had for considering peace the highest value, not justice in the conduct of war. First, the greater includes the lesser. If you start an illegal war, you're enormously likely or more likely to commit war crimes in it. Uh, And so if you're setting out to ban something and deter it and stigmatize it and punish it you would start with the illegal initiation of a war since you're then if you're at all successful likely to have some effect on the war crimes that follow but the reverse isn't true if you let's say merely concern yourself with controlling brutality in war you could just clean up ongoing wars, including illegally initiated ones. And so I think our Nuremberg ancestors were right about this, but then consider some other reasons they had to control aggression. Because consider what's legal once you start a war, including if you started illegally. First, lots of soldiers die, and that's not a violation of any law yet. And of course, our our ancestors living in the aftermath of the death of tens of millions of soldiers in two world wars were incredibly conscious of this fact. And then a lot of civilians legally died too. At the time, of course, and we maybe could debate this, it was probably legal to kill civilians in any number. at least if you were engaged in morale or strategic bombing, which all sides in World War II perpetrated. Even today, though, it's permissible, it's legal to kill lots and lots of civilians if you start a war, whether legally or legally. Uh, And that's because so-called international humanitarian law branded uh, a rebranding of the laws of war that happened in the 1960s and 70s doesn't control the death of civilians very well in spite of the reputation it has in some quarters. Then on the list, consider money. The allocation of funds spent on war could have been spent on something else like welfare. And then last, consider unintended Consequences of initiating war, fully legal, sadly, but sometimes more grievous than anything uh, like the war crimes that are perpetrated in war. If you go back to this country's war on terror ongoing uh, in the Middle East and you look at a country like Iraq and certainly Libya, more people probably died not because Americans or their allies shot at them, but because of disorder and ruin that war so regularly causes. So for all these reasons, those ancestors of ours were right, and yet I think their lessons were forgotten until about three weeks ago when Vladimir Putin single-handed reawakened, at least in elite mainstream circles, a concern with somehow doing something about aggressive war. Just as an example, Gordon Brown, the former United Kingdom prime minister, and in spite of his own support for this country's Iraq war at the time, proposed a new number to hold Putin accountable for aggression because the International Criminal Corps can, can't, and for reasons we could get into, and no other body can So my book is about what happened after Nuremberg, when the priority uh, fell increasingly on keeping war clean instead of keeping it from happening or stopping it once. It starts, and of course my case is America's so-called forever war, which was advertised and I think uh, conducted more humanely than any great power war in history. And I know that's gonna be contentious to say, and I'd love to you know, debate it with colleagues and so forth. So I, I, don't, I don't want to take up too much time, but let me just mention reasons why the transformation occurred and then what, what we can think about it in, in the aftermath. So I think the chief reason is pretty disreputable uh, for us uh, as great uh, power uh, Northern citizens. Um, after World War II, Uh, a lot of well-off white people have been victims of war for generations, Uh, really since the breakdown of the European peace uh, in the middle of the 19th century and culminating in the middle of the 20th century. And it was especially women who led the cause of peace in that period, as I detail in the book, who were upset, understandably, about the death of their husbands, sons, and brothers. And they changed the conditions of legitimation for states, which had to give lip service to a new order. Uh, uh, and it worked at least insofar as there was a new Pax Americana that you know through a series of mechanisms created a transatlantic peace. Now the, pr- the price was that global war perpetrated by empires for centuries continued and a new empire the one that this country led, uh, can, adopted that global war, which remained brutal for a very long time. Uh, and what, what seems to me to be the main thing that happened is that in the aftermath of well-off white people dying in transatlantic war, peace became less of a concern. Uh, and uh, in our time, from the 1960s and 70s to the present, after decolonization, it wasn't just that great power war in the global south became uh, less important to control for northern citizens, but that it was actively desired in many ideological quarters. That's, I think, the the story of the past 50 years. Uh, I think academics have been involved in it, at one time, our, our predecessors built peace studies. We've built something else, human rights studies, consortia for human rights, which is not about controlling force, even though, ironically, political scientists have shown the best way to protect human rights is not to have wars. The single thing you would do if you cared about human rights is to stop wars from happening or stop them once they start. Although of course, peace involves a lot of injustice and we want to have something to say about that that the human rights movement has allowed us to say. There are a lot of other reasons. I think new advocacy arose on the ruins of anti-war activism. That was concerned not with whether wars are just and legal or unjust or illegal, but whether they're brutal. That's the mainstream concern of human rights organizations. And the military took the laws of war more seriously in our time than ever, including the US military. Um, That's, I think, why the transformation happened. It affected the war on terror deeply, so that the main debate about it was how it was fought, whether torture was committed, whether too many civilians died uh, under drones and other bombing campaigns. Um, What should we think about it now? Well, I think it's a sad fact, but in his irate rant before he invaded Ukraine, Vladimir Putin became the highest profile person to say American wars and Western wars have been in violation of international law in their initiation. Uh, Probably you'd say before he spoke it was Kofi Annan who uh, uh, mentioned the Iraq war yet one very prominent moment but not the the broader war on terror which Putin references along with a lot of more specific specific interventions in uh, in, in in at the time of the Kosovo bombings in 1999 in uh, Libya in 2011 in Syria, although we could debate whether there was enough of an intervention uh, illegally at that time. So I think Putin is a scoundrel, but he, uh, he missed the most basic lesson that our mothers teach, that two wrongs don't make a right. But he identified that American and Western wrongs have made a system which he's perpetuated. And I, I don't think there's a credible response if we're gonna get serious about his aggression that doesn't think about in the broadest terms, whether and how we control force and not merely humanize wars. So that's the point of the book and I'd love to you know, engage with my colleagues and with all of you.
4: So there's a lot there and, and I really wanna hear from Troca and Celia, but if you just one addition that I think if you could add would help to set the table for the conversation. There's a lot of discussion of the law. There's a lot of discussion. You, you started with the inversion of the the uh, most important crime at Nuremberg and how it's reconstructed to, to be believed to be about crimes against humanity when the fundamental crime is aggression. Uh, and there's a lot of legal debate and we have legal expertise here. So, But before we get there, I, I was hoping you could touch on, in popular culture, a juxtaposition that you draw and you use the example of the response in public opinion and in protest to the Lai Massacre during the Vietnam War as compared to Abu Ghraib. If you could just set that
0: out, I think that helps to give a sense of, in the broader culture, how are the two moments differ? It's it's a great question and, and I, do, I do kind of obsess about the Vietnam War era in the book because it's just very interesting that it's a moment when there's concern about whether wars are just and legal—that does not concern transatlantic white citizens. So it, it, it's a kind of golden moment uh, in which the the Nuremberg priority is maintained uh, in public debate, but there's also an expansion of a sense of who can perpetrate aggression against whom, because there's you know just as an example, a big debate. Um, among citizens and lawyers about whether, when Justice Jackson said, "You, you allies can't condemn Nazi aggression and then commit it yourselves, whether America went on to do so in Southeast Asia. But there are two big differences, I think, between then and now. First, the law is just not that important. There's very little discussion of the Geneva Conventions in public during the Vietnam era. There's no self-described human rights movement, Uh, although there, as you all know, a big anti-war movement that's basically moral most of the time in its its priorities. I think there's a discernible shift in that regard after 9-11 when there's just, I think, unprecedented attention to legal instruments like the Geneva Conventions, which have been obscure uh, until they became absolutely central for various reasons we could get at. So you could you could argue there's a legalization of public debate with unclear consequences. I think they're potentially bad for the following reasons. If you have a big anti-war movement, as in 1968, and then you have an atrocity revelation as the Melee news involved, it throws fuel onto the fire of that movement and helps end the war. Abu Ghraib was the reverse. Lots of attention in the absence of a debate about whether to have the war on terror, even whether the Iraq war by itself was illegal. And the effect of it through the uh, the presidency of Barack Obama was to remove the bug of inhumanity from a, a perpetuated... Cleaner war, which the war on terror became, and that's like the opposite result. Instead of atrocity concern abetting a constraint on the existence of war, it cleaned that war in a later period up. And I think, which you know, the point of the book is to say maybe we ought to reflect on our on our argumentative priorities. Uh, although maybe there was no alternative in two thousand four or five when Abu Ghraib became such a big news to attacking atrocity in hopes that Americans would say, well, maybe the war is ill-founded. So it's, it, it's, there's no clear answer to the kind of strategic, um, you know, the strategic priorities that in any given situation the activists and academics ought to adopt. But I do think it's fateful that the result of that debate was a sanitization of an ongoing war.
4: So so let me uh, ask uh, Celia and and Frauke, and there's a lot that Sam has said. I'm going to try and pin out a few things that I think maybe you can comment on, but feel free to comment on any of what he said so far about the underlying thesis. Do you accept this tension between peace movements, opposition to war globally, and efforts to make war more humane. Do you see them as intention or do you see them as complementary? And then, anything else that Sam has said out so far that you'd she, that like to comment on? So, with you, it. Uh,
5: Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I think it's an, a very important book and many insights, and I'm really honored to be here to discuss this and to discuss the Ukraine war. Uh, I'm not sure about uh, the link between peace movement and the human rights movement and an humane war. Um, I would argue um, perhaps even the opposite. Um, but I will start with some thoughts, as Sam said before. So whether we have forgotten the lesson uh, that we uh, should not use our force in order to achieve aims. I, I don't think that the uh, lesson was forgotten. Um, well, I'm an international lawyer, and therefore the Charter of the United Nations is very important, and some international lawyers uh, even say that is the constitution of our world order. And uh, Russia accepts this. Russia is very happy uh, in, um, as a veto power in the Security Council. And the main aim of the Charter of the United Nations is to prohibit the use of force and um, to have very small exception as the exception of uh, reacting self-defense. And this was always uh, the, the the basis of the world order after the Second World War. And when we think about the um, Second Gulf War, I mean the occupation of Kuwait by Iraq, and we saw the reaction by the Western states, we see that this a prohibition to use force and uh, prohibition uh, to be an aggressive state was implemented very clearly by a military reaction on the one side and by a security Council resolution uh, that is a basis uh, for um, Iraq to pay amounts of money uh, as a, a compensation for damages um, uh, caused by this war so this is my would be my first reaction no we have forgotten um, uh, the lessons of the I think that it was always clear that it's prohibited um, to use force in the Relations between states and states knew this very well, and um, if Putin now um, pinpoints to uh, um, illegal wars by the U.S., for instance, and I agree uh, that the war um, against Iraq 2003 was illegal, and this is the common view of most international lawyers, I would argue well, uh, Putin doesn't need any help um, from uh, Western states uh, to uh, wage war in an aggressive way. Um, the latest issue of The Economist, uh, there was a quote um, uh, with regard to Putin. And Putin said, that uh, talked about the dictatorship of law. So Putin is a Secret Service um, man who never wanted to obey the rules of law. And um, I'm sure he uh, would have done everything he wanted to do without uh, IAC 2003. And um, this would be the second response. And um, uh, the third response perhaps, uh, whether the use in Bello was stressed
3: too much. Um, I'm not sure.
5: Um, uh, I think. The promise of the Charter of the United Nations that there will be no wars anymore, only acting in self-defense. It was clear from the beginning that this will will not be reality. Uh, But nevertheless, the Geneva conventions were negotiated outside um, the realm of the United Nations because the United Nations wanted to stress that they are an organization um, that is promoting peace. And nevertheless, it was clear that there will be armed conflicts. And I think it's important that we have rules that restrain uh, brutality if there are armed conflicts. And I am very much convinced that although the red lines drawn by the use in Bello uh, are not very high, and we have the so-called problem of collateral damage, a horrible word, which means that only excessive uh, damage um, is prohibited if you target a military aim. Excessive damage uh, is prohibited that uh, will mm, uh, um, uh, affect civilians and um, civilian object uh, objects. So although I think the, the, the red lines are not very high, but they are incredibly important. And we see uh, with, uh, with regard to the war in Ukraine that even these red lines are not um, taken into account by an aggressor, and I think it's it's important to stress both the prohibition to use force except in case of self-defense, and then can to the right to self-defense that it can be used by Ukraine, and uh, the red lines um, that are part of the use of and Both is very important, and we shouldn't um, trade trade the one for the other thing.
6: Thank you. Yeah, first of all, thank you so much, um, to Sam, for, for being here. Uh, it's such an excellent time to have this panel. And um, your book offers an impressive wealth of detail. And I came back as an international lawyer feeling slightly depressed uh, because this is really a book about the abuse of international law, right? And spinning a narrative around international law and using it in a way in which it was never intended. Um, and of course I ask myself the question, has international humanitarian law done more bad than good? Um, if, it's, if it's open to uses and abuses like the ones that you are describing um, in the uh, interpretation of, uh, of the charter uh, principles and uh, endless war. Now, I'd say to that, international law rules are only as good as the nations that use them. And uh, also as bad as the nations that use them. And I would like to s- sort of stand up for international humanitarian law just by giving you an example of um, an outstanding use of the rules of humanitarian law by the United States, which was when World War II ended, in thousands of German soldiers were uh, captivated by the Allies. Um, They treated the German soldiers humanely. And it is something that the generation of my parents is uh, infinitely grateful for until this day. And uh, incidentally, my own paternal grandfather was one of the soldiers who survived um, because he was treated humanely um, by by uh, the Allies, by the Americans. So uh, IHL is important, and I'm I'm with um, With The problem seems not to lie with the content of IHL, but the narrative that the United States and their lawyers, shamefully, have been created around those rules. Namely, that uh, those rules could make an intervention acceptable, even if it is open-ended. Now, if the rules of international humanitarian law were actually taken seriously, uh, the additional protocols, there would hardly be any wiggle room for aggressing parties in the first place, because by now they are so uh, restrictive. But as Sylvia is saying, um, very often the United States has been paying lip service to these rules, and uh, but never actually uh, you know, uh, in, in enforcing that in, in practice. So the problem that I see, and we'll probably come back to that point later, is the willingness of the United States to, well, deface certain principles uh, of, uh, of international law not just international humanitarian law, but of course also the, uh, the, the self-defense argument, which is the only uh, accepted exception to uh, the use of force uh, prohibition. And I remember um, a panel with Harold Koh, which I attended at Yale University some time ago, where he was talking about transatlantic relations. And he said, and I quote, states are either international law takers or international lawmakers which to the internationals in room came as a shock. Now for the Americans, uh, this is nothing new. So uh, unilateralism in the interpretation of and enforcement of international law um, is a huge problem. And uh, that I think, this this unilateral manipulative approach is the real issue here, not so much IAJL.
4: So let me flag a mission and raise another question and transition to Ukraine, because it's clearly you want to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. That's great. But in terms of the the argument, and and, in the book, Sam, you you track throughout the, the, the thread from beginning to end is Leo Tolstoy. And a couple of the analogies that he draws, as you know, that you focus, are on the potential goal of making slavery more humane. Uh, and whether that is a legitimate goal or whether that works to maintain slavery, and whether making slaughterhouses more humane, if one is a vegetarian, uh, whether that serves to make uh, eating uh, veal cutlets uh, more palatable. And I think those two examples sort of are strong examples in favor of the idea that Trying to make something atrocious humane might actually serve to maintain the horrendous practice. Uh, I agree with what you say, Cilia, and I'm an international lawyer as well. Yes, we should, and countries should respect use ad bellum, and yes, if conflicts should present themselves, states should respect use in bellum but they don't. And I think that it may be the case that there is only so much energy or only so much space in the public debate to frame particular issues in particular ways. So let me just set that out in defense of what Sam has said, while I agree with what you said, uh, so what you said, Frauke, it might not be possible to have both. We might, we might have to choose. So we turn our attention to, to Ukraine Now, and there was a debate raging in Germany. I'm sure that uh, Germans here are familiar with it about, in in the past few weeks, uh, about what should Germany's role with regard to what's happening in Ukraine be. Uh, And one thing we've seen in in the States, I'll just flag this as as a factual, as a data point that I think is useful, and I'd love to give your response to this, there have been leaks from int- inside intelligence services in which those responsible for providing information to Ukrainian forces to facilitate successful targeting of valuable targets have recognized that it was US intelligence that led to this phenomenal military success and not the strength of a ragtag Ukrainian military. The United States just authorized $40 billion in support. I think that's about the annual budget of the Russian military. So it's increasingly clear that the worst fears of those who two months ago said this conflict, this war may spiral out of control and it may become a proxy war between two nuclear superpowers where we will all be on the edge of our seats wondering if we were going to experience nuclear annihilation. I think those fears are being realized. And what I see in the mainstream media, but there's a debate in Germany, what I see is focus on violations of the laws of war, focus on the brutal, atrocious slaughter of civilians, which is happening in the conflict. And I wonder if maybe there's not enough space for both a critical assessment of what would be the best thing to stop the slaughter—some sort of negotiation. If there's not enough space for that frame and that thinking, and that as a campaign for folks, well, as opposed to uh, opposition to Russian atrocities. So I'd love to get your sense on that broader issue, and then I'd like to get follow-up and ask about the debates in
0: Germany. I don't know if we want to start with you, Sami and Celia, then Faroka. Sure. These these are all you know momentous. Uh... Points that are being made. Um, let me just respond to a couple of things that Paulka uh, and Sylvia said and, and then get to, to Jim's question. But partly, you know, you've answered their points. Um, I, I guess I just want to make very clear: there's, there's no criticism of, of trying to make war less brutal as such. It's about controlling the risk while doing so. And if you shift context, there's, there's been for decades a very open debate, for example, about the ethics and politics of trying to reduce cruelty in the administration of the death penalty in this country, which is an incredibly noble effort. But it, it would not strike terror into any activist uh, in doing death penalty work to observe that a more humane practice is then harder to challenge as such. And you, know, you may reply, well, you can't challenge war as such. You know, we can debate that. You know, we used to think you couldn't challenge slavery or indeed the death penalty as such. But I think you can say that certain wars are not worth fighting and set the world back and deserve to be stopped before they start or contained once they do and just by the way that would include every war my country has fought in my lifetime as far as i can tell and then you're you're in the heart of this debate about what would be the conditions as in the death penalty under which you do something in the short term that has more consensus without threatening some longer term agenda and so it's it's that that argument that i'm trying to make about um, the laws of war, which is not that they're good or don't you know, don't protect your ancestors or whatever. It's that they legitimate wars, and I just think it's really important to remember, because I'm not an international lawyer, really a lawyer. I just teach it, um, <laughs> that that we can't have rule naivete when thinking about law in general. Law is a, a, a terrain of struggle, and actors, especially making treaties in the international system, retain a say over the implications of the law. And so, it's not going to be good enough, in my judgment, to say that America broke the law uh, because states get to interpret the law and follow it in their own understanding. And there's just an open-ended political struggle about who wins in contestation around the meaning of the law. So I think we have to keep lawyers in their place when they say things like, the law is clear and someone broke it, because that's not what Americans think. Uh, and that's not what Barack Obama think when thought, thought when in his two major speeches about the continued war on terror, first his Nobel Peace Address, and then his National Defense university address uh, explaining the the drone program, the humanity of uh, exceptional American war relative to all prior world powers and enemies of America was at the center. And it's in that sense that the law doesn't just prohibit. It doesn't just permit. It helps powerful actors legitimate their practices. And I think that's you know, that's a a really powerful claim about law in general, that it's different than is law good or bad. You know, it changes the the terrain of struggle, not always for the better, sometimes for the worse. Now, on on Ukraine, it's clearly, it has been, you know, for for a long time now, an internationalized proxy war. Uh, And, you don't even need to you know get to these leaks because high american officials say so and I, I i think it's a really interesting thing to hear what germany's stance ought to be you know let's be honest germany has been a, a vassal state for a number of decades having been beaten when it had tried to try to assert independence in a big way from the liberal international order and I'm glad it was beaten, obviously. But it, it has limited policy autonomy. Uh, in, it did in the Cold War. It does now. And it's, it ha- it's very interesting to see how it's responding in, in minor ways within that situation to this very proximate war. Um, but what I think we can't deny is it's part of an internationalized proxy war and I, you know, I'm with Jim in thinking that the consequences of such wars are very unpredictable. And what we can't mix up is the short-term interests of Ukraine and its people in not having a war on the one hand, and the much broader interests of outside players potentially in perpetuating the war to weaken a geopolitical adversary. And those are different aims and they're, they've gotten confused. And I think the first is defensible in my humble opinion because Ukrainians have a right to self-determination and the Russians did something unholy. The second aim seems dubious to me morally and it seems very dangerous. Thank you very
5: much. Well, they are very there are many points um, to make and to mention. Perhaps to go back to, to your book, uh, perhaps one last time. Uh, but um, I think I disagree um, that the use of battles, the laws of war a legitimate war or armed conflict. Uh, I think they draw red lines, and I think the red lines are really important. I think the Titan uh, haven't hasn't been the Obama administration with the humane war, but rather the Bush administration. And I have been a young researcher at the Max Planck Institute um, uh, in Heidelberg for International Law in 2001 after 9-11. And we have been shocked. We have been shocked what the Bush administration was doing and qualifying terrorists as unlawful combatants and arguing that neither the Gen- Geneva Convention nor the Fourth Geneva Convention is protecting them. And it took a long time until the Supreme Court argued that the so-called common article three of the Geneva Conventions, prohibiting um, torture, uh, discrimination, etc., is applicable in this war on terror. And this shows that if you are an administration who's willing to violate law, You don't need the use in battle to legitimize war. And um, and I I think uh, uh, it was a disappointment that the drone warfare wasn't stopped um, um, under the Obama uh, uh, administration. Uh, But I think we have had not enough discussions about the laws of war during the Obama administration. Uh, If we would have more uh, discussions about the laws of war, we could have argued that these strong warfare isn't in the limits of the laws of a war uh, because you are not allowed to uh, kill somebody from an airplane or with a drone that doesn't has, has distinctive signs. So CIA killings have been unlawful. And we should have said this perhaps even louder. Um, and other, and the, the, the globalized battlefield, uh, no limits um, with regard to the territory and no limits with regard to the uh, time. And then arguing it's a non-international armed conflict. This is not in line with a, dict- a doctrinal view uh, and interpretation of the laws in war. So I agree with Rauke, who said it's not the laws in war that legitimize anything. It's not the laws in war. Uh, that uh, brutalize uh, the war. Uh, um, it's the misinterpretation of different administrations um, of the laws of war. And nevertheless, I'm glad that the Obama administration at least accepted that the laws of war ac- uh, are applicable. Um, in contrast to the Bush administration, the Bush, Bush administration made, um, uh, yeah, he, he
2: made people foggify, as we say. Uh, um, um,
5: um, unlawful combatants, and this is not a concept uh, a legal system can can uh, can accept.
0: Um, he's, he's just going to let me say one quick thing, which is these are brilliant comments. But note that after Hamdan v. Rumsfeld and the application of Common Article Three to the War on Terror, and after more important, Barack Obama was elected and embraced the laws of war he didn't capture anyone, he just killed them instead. So that's, that's a paradoxical consequence of moving from a law-free war on terror, which you find horrifying, to a legalized one. And not only that, he came out and touted the legalization of the war on terror as the central achievement of his administration. But we know that many more people died under the drones and in other forms of normalized targeted killing than had happened under Bush. So that's, I think, that's my response, that the law does what it does, and powerful actors can use it, not just critics of power.
4: Unless
0: you want to...
6: No, we don't want to have a dialogue with okay. you. <laughs>
0: All
4: right.
6: <Perfect. laughs> Yeah, I tend to agree with Celia that the, the actual Zeitungen or the paradigm change was the Bush era. And it's quite telling that the last serious debate, we had a public debate in Germany about military action was in 2003 uh, when people actually went into the street. Uh, and at that point, everybody went into the street uh, because we were, everybody was against the war. And uh, now, since last week, and those who have been following the German press uh, have probably seen it, we have a new debate uh, under, under a different, in a different light, and it's, uh, which is interestingly also um, a generational debate. So, so what happened was that one group of German intellectuals headed by, by Alice Schwarzer, the well-known feminist, uh, published an open letter to, to the chancellor saying, Please stop delivering heavy uh, tank-breaking uh, ups to, to Ukraine because this will only, uh, um, you know, increase the risk of of a Russian uh, counterattack and an escalation of the of the conflict. And uh, basically, what they said was that uh, he who escalates a conflict becomes uh, responsible, co-responsible. For, for the consequences of that uh, escalation. That had a huge backlash. So there was another group of, of intellectuals taking the uh, press, um, this time younger people, uh, my generation roughly. Uh, so some, uh, some writers uh, and the Nobel Prize winner, Hertha Miller, Uh, who said, uh, we have a historic responsibility for Ukraine because of what the Wehrmacht committee um, (laughs) did there. And it is a moral demand of solidarity that we uh, support them in this struggle. And once more, the one voice of reason in this whole thing has been Jürgen Habermas, who also published a lengthy essay and said that, everybody, please calm down and don't be so shrill. yeah, so uh, it's it's a very interesting discourse. It's an important discourse that we are having about our military stance and and our identity looking to the future and whether our post-war identity is still uh, still relevant in the twenty first century. The one debate, what I'm missing from this debate is, and uh, I think that is uh, that is a point that you've been making in in the Guardian article as well. Um, about the U.S., uh, we're not really uh, asking about how this has happened in the first place and why the wars break out. Why have we not succeeded in outlawing them altogether? So we're dealing with the consequences and whether we should give priority to solidarity or security, but we're not asking ourselves uh, how did it come to this and what um, what is... Uh, our role in all this and I think that Germany needs to take a very hard look at itself as well and uh, its own hypocrisy in being sort of an outspoken pacifist uh, nation with with one of the biggest being one of the biggest arms exporter in the world and, and buying from from authoritarian countries so um, I I do hope that this debate is only the beginning of, of uh, a discourse on on German identity um, in terms of military action.
4: So let me raise one more point for the panelists, and then I'd like to leave time for questions because I imagine there are questions and thoughts that uh, a very distinguished group here has. But one of the your book has been widely critiqued. I mean. As in, not trash, but people have read it and thought about it. Uh, uh, I think it has been widely received as a significant contribution, like most of your other work. But one of the more critical essays is by Priya uh, Satya. And there are a number of things that she says, but one of them, which I think is interesting, she flags something that you flag, which is the largest single mass mobilization against war uh, is before the Iraq invasion. So it's not as though there is not some underlying peace sentiment, even as war has become sanitized or made more humane. Uh, Even as the post-2004 Abu Ghraib revelations lead to a response that sounds in use in bellow, anti-torture and not uh, uh, questioning the overall war on terrorism. So I just want to say something that I feel, and I'd really love to get your sense, but the sense here. I feel, uh, and I happen to think, so I will expose my down cards here, I happen to think that there ought to be more energy oppressing the United States for whom the, the, the war in Ukraine is a proxy war, and other European states that are funding it, much more energy to, to use our public uh, opinion, engagement, protests, to press the United States to in turn press for some sort of negotiated ceasefire, stop the slaughter, stop the slaughter. I think that should be a focus. So I'm saying that, so now you can discount what I'm going to say next. I feel, and I was a human rights advocate in the, in the 90s and in the 2000s, even before, But that's not here and there. I remember at the time of Abu Ghraib, I did, television and radio interviews about Albuquerque. And I felt the need, in order to legitimate myself, before I say good morning, I am a clinical professor at Harvard Law School, but to legitimate myself, I would have to say, terrorism is atrocious and we are opposed to terrorism and terrorists must be stopped. That was sort of what one would have to say to engage in the debate. And that we were, I think we were cowed into that, which is the term that Priya Satya uses. I think now we are similarly, counted. if I want to say this is a more critical space, or pretty much any other space, I think the United States, which has done nothing to promote the settlement and probably could have prevented this war from occurring, should be doing much more to negotiate peace. In order to be able to say that, I must first pay homage to the narrative, the dominant discourse, which requires that I recognize, which I do, that Putin has committed war crimes, the war is an aggressive invasion, it violates Article 2 4. Massive war, uh, violations of humanitarian law are occurring by Russian forces. And so the, I, I, I throw that out there because I think that's viscerally, that's what I feel is what's happening in the debate. And, and I'm asking what has been the role, do you think, of the force of communications? in the current context with ukraine to legitimate certain messages and delegitimate other messages or narratives and how has maybe that been sam and others how has that been one of the if not the main explanatory causes of the difference between the response to milan and the response to right in other words what is acceptable discourse and what is unacceptable discourse and how that's constructed i'd love your sense on that and then then after any other comments you want to make and then you'll get the firing line
0: from the observers here well just very quickly because those are both fantastic questions um i i i I don't think it will do to understate the the anti-war sentiment including in the united states itself after 2001 and i wouldn't ever sell short that one day in, in in 2003, which remains the biggest day of coordinated mobilization against any war in human history, and yet its effects were negligible at the time. Um, I would expand your case, actually, because I insist in the book that there proved kind of extraordinary electoral legitimation in presidential contests for opposing certain wars. Barack Obama, whatever happened in office, won against Hillary Clinton in part by opposing a war she had supported. Donald Trump, uh, amazingly, unexpectedly, ascended relative to his fellow Republicans after he came out in February 2016 in South Carolina against the Iraq war, which was verboten in Republican circles. And because of that fact, it was widely Predicted that he destroyed his own candidacy, and yet he won against them and beat Hillary. Uh, you know, with a very large asterisk. Again, in part because a lot of veterans uh, un- understood him, for better or worse, to be more of a critic of U.S. militarism than she was. And Biden finally ran against the forever war, uh, and in 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 total fairness, did and and, and the Afghan of war in, in its prior form. So that's all something to build on. I don't think it compares to the to the power of the mobilization you had in Vietnam and in between the wars in this world wars in this country and in other places. And so we have to keep you know a sense of proportion. Now, I completely agree that it's a kind of a fundamental thing to think about how mainstream uh, media kind of controls the space of debate. And that's something very different than we often do in liberal circles where we scapegoat Fox News, when in fact, liberal media, in the case of, of these wars, has been fully on board with a, a narrowing of the space for just kind of reasonable criticism. Uh, and that was most obviously, I think, by widespread admission true in 2002, 3 if it's true now, I think you're making a pretty damning point because it would suggest that very little was learned.
5: I would like to stress uh, the question whether it's a proxy war or whether it's not a proxy war and whether this is relevant uh, with regard to the Ukrainian people. Um, probably from a Observe a position, and from a political point of view or historic point of view, you could say it's a proxy war. And certainly, the information the US gives to Ukraine are very relevant in um, uh, targeting uh, objects or targeting uh, combatants. And um, this is a a highly political issue, and the US and Biden administration uh, must debate how far they want to go. But from uh, the the, the side of the um, the Ukrainian people, the question is whether and how they can act um, in self-determination. And um, if we have the right to self-defense, I think every support for Ukraine is a support of the individual right to self-defense. And it's not collective self-defense. So my point would be neither Germany nor the US is at the moment a party to the conflict in legal terms. And uh, we are supporting um, the Ukraine, Ukraine and the democratic um, uh, government of Ukraine in the right to self-defense. And this is a political decision whether we want to do it, um, but it's not um, any violation of the laws of neutrality or the laws. And um, the political decision and debate have to has to go on, but um, I can understand every government who supports Ukraine in the fight against Russia, because I think um, to fight aggression doesn't only mean to have an international court like Nuremberg. To fight aggression means also to um, yeah give um, a, a country and a state the chance to establish something like Nuremberg. And this would be one comment um, uh, with regard to the question of
6: self-defense and legitimacy. I'll take mine. Thank you. Now, um, uh, you both have a point, and there's, of course, points to be made for uh, keeping out of this conflict, especially if if we consider it as a proxy war, which very likely is. On the other hand, uh, it is finally, finally, black and white situation, which we haven't had for such a long time, where it's fairly clear who the aggressor actually is and, and who the victim. And so, um, and it's possible to say there are certain solidarity obligations, and uh, especially if, if neighbors are concerned. So there's good arguments to be said for for both sides, I guess. Um, be that as it may, what we should have is, uh, is an open and honest dialogue where all the facts are on the table. Um, policy considerations as well as, as ethical arguments, and those who, who fear that this might escalate into a nuclear uh, conflict which might affect them, those in Germany, they also have a right to speak up and shouldn't be shouted down. So um, we need that conflict, and I just wished it was a transatlantic conflict. Uh, sorry, oh my God, <laughs> a debate. Oh my God, uh, <coughs> Freudian slip. Um, we need that debate, and it should be a transatlantic debate. And I think a forum like this is an excellent stand, uh, starting point for the discussion, which really should not happen in the bubble of our respective uh, countries with our very broad histories and memories so uh,
4: I can't just making one brief comment before taking questions the, the fact that you state and I'm not questioning the assertion that finally this is a black and white yeah. situation of violation of article 2.4 I, I think speaks to the efforts of many within the United States and its government to present uh, other interventions other engagements as having some legal basis <clears throat> and I think it speaks to the role and power of law as a, a weapon, so to speak, to be used to legitimate uh, foreign policy that might not comply with the best interpretations of law. I fully agree with Professor gorecki's interpretation and analysis uh, about the global theater, uh, the creation of the idea of a, a non-combatant with no rights under international law oh, but but I also see it demonstrates how hard the United States has worked to create a, a legal argument that is at least plausible to justify the actions that on a political basis it has chosen to take so <clears throat> that's my opinion we can I'll take some kicks now presumably uh, <clears throat> but I'd like to turn it over to the floor we're gonna use those uh, mics right, uh, um, yeah, yeah. okay you'll be the Was that? You'd me
3: right now. Right there, the two at that table. Um, Hi. Uh, Thank you for this debate. Um, It's been pretty stimulating. So, um, I wanted to say that um, I think the argument that laws that um, prioritize a humane war do ultimately generate war and potentially like, potentially lengthen it. I think that's a, a really compelling argument and I tend to agree with it. Um, I also think that this discussion has attributed too much causal efficacy to law generally because I think Putin would have invaded Ukraine regardless of what the law said. I think that even mm-hmm. if the US's record, inter- the US and other Western powers, even if their record In war, was Sweetie Clean, Putin still would have invaded. So, I think we're, I mean, it's natural, it's a natural tendency of lawyers to attribute too much causal efficacy to their their own instruments, right? Um, I also think that, like, in in saying that peace is a priority um, and ending the war is a priority, I think that we should actually be discussing pragmatically how do we address the root causes of war and prevent this from happening in the future. And maybe that means addressing toxic masculinity. Maybe it means addressing our reliance on big oil, right? That has allowed a petrol state like Russia to use those resources to act very aggressively. I think also that, you know, as we're discussing the utility or the causal the efficacy of war, you know, bodies are piling up in very and and the law is not very effective or helpful. Um, and I think we should be thinking about nuclear nonproliferation. But also and, and this is kind of something that I've not super relevant, but something I've warned recently. We had a whole conversation yesterday about sustainability, because climate change is an extension-level event that we should all be talking about. But as we're relying on nuclear energy as a as a source of transition energy, um, is there a correlation between nuclear energy and nuclear power? Because the thing that has struck me most about this conflict is how helpless we feel, because we are worried about nuclear war between two nuclear superpowers. And that Really constrains what we're able to do to pragmatically help Ukrainians, Um, and so I think that should be more the focus of the discussion than sort of um, the utility of of IHL. But but that's just my
4: So let's take a few more uh, questions, and then we'll ask uh, the three panelists to to respond to whichever of the many questions and comments. That's shipstation.com with the code P-O-D. Thank you very much for this uh, inviting discussion. As an IR person, I really appreciate
7: it. Both uh, my students are only here to, to listen to some of these themes that have come up. Um,
4: so I see two different frames that have kind of emerged in the course of the conversation. One is the rhetorical seductiveness of the idea of humanity. And then on the other
8: hand, we have the assumed stability and interpretive ability
4: of international law. And so my question is: Are these able to be reconciled, and to what end? Is the goal to prevent a loss of life, to minimize the loss of life, to make war more humane, or is it to end all forms of war, including proxy wars? Okay. So maybe one more. I think Professor Wilson has a couple of others. One more, then we'll have a second, another round. We have time. I I think we should run. Should we run the full hour and a half? Because we started late. No lunch. I see you, uh, Albert. But uh, on the point of order, can I get an answer? Run an hour and a half. Great, that's another 20, 20, 20. 20. 20 Okay. Okay.
7: Uh, thanks very much for this great panel, and I really enjoyed the tensions between the panelists. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Sam. Uh, thanks very much for um, your book and presentation. So, um, few things are more sanctimonious and even the, the liberal democratic wings of it. And I think no one punctures that hypocrisy and sanctimoniousness is better than Sam. But I worry that it's uh, too focused on the US, and that there's a denial of agency of other actors elsewhere. Um, I was surprised the Germans didn't boo you and you refer to them as members of a vassal state. Because <laughs> I think they probably, uh, some, some might have nodded, but others felt that they had more agency than that. The same kind of agency that Africans and Latin Americans have when they mobilize uh, from the trials of uh, Charles Taylor, of Hassan Hamre, of Rios Montt, of Pinochet, and the whole list of others. And those human rights trials uh, regarding crimes against humanity do connect up with questions of aggression and war. Why? because they disrupt systems of corruption. They disrupt the criminal kleptocracies that have seized states and that engage in wars. Uh, I see almost no ideology to Vladimir Putin. He is simply a thug at the top of a joint criminal enterprise. And to dignify him with anything more than that, I think is to make an important mistake. So, If there are crimes against humanity or war crimes trials in the future, either for Putin or for others. And I think that remains to be seen, actually. I think we should exercise humility uh, and say we just don't know. Uh, Having said, raise my hand because I made this mistake so many times before, I did say Milosevic will never be tried, and Pinochet will never be tried, and they both were. So disrupting Uh, criminal and corrupt elites is an essential part of the structural attributes of uh, minimizing the crime against uh, the crime of aggression. And in that way, human rights does contribute to the kind of things that you're talking about. And I
4: think it's important to recognize that that connection exists. Okay, so Sebastian, let's hold on one second. There's a lot out there and give the panelists an opportunity to, to respond. So, uh, we'll, we'll come down, to it. Let's, let's flip it. We'll start with you, forever. Okay,
6: thank you, so many um, interesting questions. I just picked one, uh, your point on, on toxic masculinity. Um, that's a very interesting point because it's been said that uh, you know war abroad generates, generates tyranny at home. And you're probably aware of the book by Virginia Woolf, The Three Guineas, in which she complains. Uh, that she wrote it during the Second World War, and she was complaining about British men fighting against t- um, tyranny abroad, and uh, while in, at home they were showing blatant misogyny. So um, I think that there's, um, I mean, well, I don't think it's been proven that there's an obvious connection uh warfare and uh, human rights violations and, and of course suppression of minorities uh, at home um, and uh, Putin's a very good example of that which is just another reason why I agree that the absolute priority should be to outlaw war altogether. Um, for the, the many consequences it, it, it entails, not just for the uh, countries under attack, but also all the populations uh, involved.
5: Thank you very much for the question on, and comments. And uh, it would be a misunderstanding if I would argue, or you think you are, I argue that uh, laws can prevent anything. Certainly the laws of war do not prevent war. And certainly, the Charter of the United Nations do not prevent war. But nevertheless, they make it possible to classify an act as lawful or unlawful. And this is very important, because an unlawful act has consequences. I'm sure that Russia will pay the price for what it's doing in Ukraine. I'm very definite uh, on the, the level of individual uh, responsibility with regard to the. Uh, crimes um, uh, against um, humanity and the war crimes. I'm sure about this. And perhaps even they have to pay a, rep- a reparation. So and this is very important. The laws are violated, but the violation of laws has consequences in a moral and an ethical and a legal way. And therefore, we need the laws and we have to stress the laws. And I will repeat my argument with regard to the drone warfare in the Obama administration. I think we haven't stressed the laws of war enough because then we would have argued that the unlimited battlefield is not in coherence with the laws of war and terrorism is a crime. And we have to, um, to deal with it uh, on the criminal law level uh, of the different states and capture and not kill. Um, and this would be one first remark. The second remark is: um, how to, was there any possibility to prevent this war? And uh, we had discussions in Germany, and there are our voices that uh, say, well, we should have reacted with more emphasis after the occupation of Crimea. So, not negotiating and not accepting. Uh, but having more sanctions and perhaps even uh, military reactions to the occupation of Crimea. I'm not saying that this would have solved our problems or whether it it would have been escalation, but at least uh, these are voices as well uh, that we can hear now. And um, I'm not sure what is the reason for the war, but if you hear uh, what Putin is saying, and if you hear that he's stressing that he wants to have Russia in the borders of the Soviet Union, um, there might be uh, no argument um, that have would have prevented him from doing what he was doing because he has the nuclear shield. And when his aim is to have the borders of Russia um, the same as the borders of the Soviet Union, he, he tries to achieve this aim, probably whatever we think and whatever we. We do. Um, I try to overhear uh, the notion of the WSL state. Um, I think uh, Germany um, acted um, with a lot of autonomy. And the Obama administration was a little bit um, concerned about the close relation between Germany and Russia uh, with regard to North Stream 1 and North Stream 2. And um, therefore, I wouldn't underestimate German autonomy. Um, and I wouldn't agree that we have been a possible state in this uh, regard.
0: Well, so just a general remark um, about law, which is, I think we should always guard against premature affiliation with it uh, uh, because there's a temptation to idealize it. But when we look out this window, we know domestically that criminal law is organized to let the most powerful off scot-free and her the weakest into jail and basically the same occurs on an international stage Uh, and I just think in general we should be concerned not to forget that a a legal system that to date is more complicit than not with oppression and may allow stigmatization but mainly for the weak uh, is not worth backing it's worth reforming, uh, and uh, I, you know, I don't want to comment in detail how I think that applies to, you know, every contemporary situation. But it's a general point that I think is 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 hard to deny. Now, I, I, you know, there's something artificial about connecting the critique I tried to mount of U.S. war in this book with the current situation. Because I completely agree with you that even though Obama made uh, international humanitarian law the centerpiece of his main addresses about the war it just it just seems to be playing less of an important role in in this particular situation and, and we shouldn't you know deny its relevance but not um, magnify it now I'm I, I guess on on the other question I you know um, you know to date proxy war except in very limited circumstances and the global arms trade that this country you know, Leads and and organizes is not in violation of any legal norms. Uh, And we might well want to change that because both of these practices historically have made the world worse. We've been talking about direct military intervention, you know, by America in the first instance in the war on terror and then later by Putin in in Ukraine. And that's its own conversation. Um, Richard, I would never dare deny anyone's agency but we always have to put agency in context because it's never all it's never nothing it's always situated and that's true of all actors uh, including those who are are are, are most powerful in a, in a given situation i i you know i don't think it's denial of agency to to get at how actors are situated uh, and it's just i think a red herring to say so and so, to critique one country is not to exempt others. Uh, and I, I just don't. I think there can be a failure of emphasis, but maybe there's also justifications for emphasis in choosing scholarly topics and pursuing certain arguments. For example, as a citizen of a country, you have much more relation to its debates and to elites who exercise power. Uh, and I have, you know, I have no chance of affecting aggression that that Putin is is conducting. But I might have some say in public debate about what this country does in response. Um, You know, more generally, of course, you're right that concern about control of force and concern about brutality and war can go together. No one ever denied it. And it's contingent whether it does, just as it's contingent whether the goals pull apart and my, my latest book you know, is is just about how that can happen and did happen in this country's recent history. And I think it's worth talking about, among many other things. And then the question would be, well, how do we get our concern for force to go along with the concern for brutality and war? Because they're both noble goals. And if priorities got, you know, um, I think distorted then we can we can, and ought to try to correct that situation
4: ok so I see we have about 9
0: minutes 8 or 9
4: minutes left so I think uh, Sebastian if you can take 2 more keep going use the time I'm, we have time uh, ok that's a lot of time so I'm, I'm just trying to follow the rules here uh I'm
2: very important. Uh so yes, hello three. Start with my question on, And I guess my question or observation is addressed to the second my my observation would be that um the prohibition of the use of force as a in the United Nations Charter never been questioned, not even by Russia or the United States on the legal level. Um, so instead, my observation would rather be that they have been trying to argue or to interpret the book in accordance with the United Nations Charter, whether this was convincing or not is another question. But the United States. Tries to justify their war on terror by self-defense, self which is an exception um, that is granted under the United Nations Charter. And no matter how much they extended the notion of the self-defense, I was wondering whether international scholars did the word to counter that uh, interpretation. Um, also, Russia is trying to follow the Kosovo example in. Recognizing the separatist territory in independence, in, in, in the nation. Um, so my point is, it, it's not that they are not um, agreeing with the United Nations Charter or that they are challenging the validity of the group. Instead, they're trying to argue in accordance with it. And the armies, they're validating the prohibition of the use of force with exceptions under the charter. So the problem of I see is not whether to prohibit the war, but rather how to enforce that prohibition. Um, and I think we have rather the problem how to suppress the war, rather than how to prohibit it. Um, and here my my second point is how far we are allowed to go in suppressing that, or what kind of sanctions, for example, we are allowed to impose. And here I. Refer to our first panel um, that concerns the sanctions that have affected also Russian scholars, including Germany. Their funds were divided, they are, they are um, also now in their precarious situation. So, I was wondering what is your take on that? Because it was a very indiscriminatory measure. Um, of course, one sees the point that uh, you want to cut economic and social resources um, and support for capital actually, um, but I think it was uh, maybe bit indiscriminatory
9: uh, measure, and I was wondering, to what extent also yeah universities could maybe have a more nuanced approach in addressing that situation as well. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm, I'm Mike Rubin. I'm an assistant research professor at HRI. At um, so I just wanted to uh, raise a couple of, uh, points that related on the, on the two you know, main points of one the decline of emphasis on preventing war uh, in the post-Nuremberg era, and then uh, the causal effect, I guess, of IHL on sort of increasing the, the co- increasing the likelihood of war by lowering its cost, essentially, right? So on the on the uh, decline of emphasis, one of the things that the the empirical social uh, political science at least literature has documented is that interstate war has the relative frequency of interstate war has Dramatically decline uh, in this in this very era, and part of it has to do with you know the territorial integrity norms and other sort of features of this preventive war, um, you know, normative legal framework. Uh, and it kind of gets at uh, maybe a different angle of what Richard was mentioning of, of ignoring uh, non-American cases or non-Great Power cases. Right? So at, at least in the broader world, maybe I don't know. if you can Speak to this. Um, it actually has maybe had a internal effect, and maybe just not at the most powerful uh, countries. Which, uh, getting back to the, the first point uh, that was made in the, in the audience discussion, you know, law can be a in a lot of cases when, it, when we're at these questions about power. Um, and so, on the, on the second point, on um, the causal effect of IHL, sort of like justifying war, I'm not sure that. Um, uh, that we observed um, leaders using the language of IHL to justify their wars necessarily implies that causal effect. I think it's observationally equivalent to um, whatever like, it, it, we're implying you know, the counterfactual being that if you didn't have that emphasis or those, those laws or the, the, the over-outsized emphasis of that on uh, the discourse that we wouldn't have leaders going to war because they wouldn't be able to justify them. But I, I think, uh, you know, whatever the discourse regime, you know, if they're making their, uh, if, if work is very costly, uh, and so we're likely you know, to avoid war for lots of other reasons. And is IHL really tipping the balance? Um, and in fact, I was actually thinking that it could, it could increase the cost of work if they, if, if leaders are making decisions like I will have to, you know, avoid some of these tactics that that make it less costly for me to go. Right. so uh, I don't know if you know empirically um, you can speak to some of those uh uh issues uh, sure.
8: well you were talking about the proxy war. Uh, I would ask you could, could explain more about the underlying uh, uh, conflict and interest in this proxy war and its history, uh, history of the conflict and the future of the conflict. Because I think it's a little bit narrow at, at the moment when we talk about the war and can actually melt, uh, addressing it to Putin as an aggressor, which is true. Uh, but neglecting uh, the history, for my opinion, starts with the German reunification and a future which, uh, in my view, is visible in the new strategy of the private atmosphere in the Pacific area. area. Could you, put in context, explain your understanding of what the proxies stands for what are the underlying interest in the policy? What do we If <laughs> it's, it's concise, nice, then to we can toss it in. Last, last question. Yeah, just, uh, I'd like to think of myself as a systems person. And, and this argument um, kind of reflects my kind of recent take on uh, the Connecticut criminal justice system. Uh, we lost 10,000 people in our prisons. Um, and uh, at the same time, we're having an argument about the justice system and its value and a, a lot of these things. Uh, there's a, there's a counter argument that's going on that, uh, on this tough on crime. And uh, we're employing um, another 20 year problem because we're that argument is leading to more police, more corrections, more. At the same time, we're having this conversation on is war justifiable and the law and all this. We're investing a whole heck of a lot in weapons of war that are going to need to be maintained. And so, going back to the question about denuclear, and that like, how much of it is looking at the systems that perpetuate war rather than the laws or the the, the arguments about
4: so uh i would ask each of you to consider which of the many points you want to address and maybe in two to three minutes make your your final
0: comments uh we'll start to you sam and we're probably down the panel as way well. okay um self-defense you know it's it's a it's it's maybe a necessary feature of the control of force regime but it allows almost anything through interpretation. In my book, I cited 19th century peace activists who said, well, look, if you allow a self-defense interpret exception, then Napoleon or Tamerlane is happy. Uh, And I think we, we have a lot of evidence that that suspicion is correct, but there's no alternative right now. And so I agree with you that we're on a terrain of struggle the way I characterize law. And it's not that it's anything goes but that it matters who wins in forging consensus over when the exception is valid and when it's not, especially given that you, know, you create in every you know, permission pretext for later actors. And that's, of course, Putin's point, because his speech is one of the great love letters of our time to international law. Uh, and I think that's a huge challenge to the, my friends here, because it, it reminds us, once again, that with this gaping exception and the rise of new rationales for force like humanitarian intervention in 1999, you get lots of potential for abusive pretexts. Um, and we're, we're all kind of facing a challenge that we have to you know, take more seriously than I think we have, uh, especially in, in, in the face of American war lately. Um, decline of war, yeah. I mean, it, that that's a really important you know empirical finding. But I think in part what's what's driving it is that um, a decline in the allowability of conquest. We don't know, honestly. I mean, I don't think anyone except Putin and his you know stooges know was he out for let's say merely regime change American style, or was he going to engage in a broader con- conquest as with uh, the uh, you know, attempted annexation of Crimea. What we do know from post-war history is that there are alternatives to conquest that involve other forms of control, including funding clients and proxies and arming them. And so maybe the decline of war thesis is, let's say, you know, something that ought to be put in a broader context. On your other point, of course, establishing causality is really hard. I personally don't think political science should hold itself out as a science that can establish such causality, and I would never dream of trying. All I can say is that it somehow matters that Obama, again, in his two major speeches on the war on terror, made this form of legitimation central. And partly maybe because he thought it was right to fight more humanely than not. But also because some constituency cared, and he thought they cared, and you know that is a legitimation effect. Is it a big causal input? Probably not. Is it decisive? I think in in thinking about the era's public discourse for sure. And so I think it's it's worth um, studying. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the last question is just a, a really hard one. Um, I, I do think that if we start, you know, assembling a list in rank order of the biggest factors in the perpetuation of war by states like Russia and states like the United States, there are going to be there's going to be a, a huge number of things on the list, including in our country the fact that we built a warfare state instead of a welfare state, in which. You know, there's a lot of procurement dollars. There's a lot of, you know, pseudo-welfare that you get by su- supposedly volunteering to fight, and so on and so forth. And those are things that a lot of analysts have talked about. Um, and whatever I'm talking about is very far down the list. I think it's my only defense is that I don't think it was given adequate attention lately, and I think it's new. And so it's, I think it's worth putting on the list and then thinking,
5: Thank you. I would like to um, um, come back to the self-defense argument. I think self-defense is, as an exception to uh, the prohibition to use force, um, certainly open to interpretation. But I wouldn't would say that you can do anything um, when, you, when you claim your act in self-defense. Uh, your colleague at Yale Law School said before the ICJ, before the International Court of Justice, with regards to the provisional measures um, and uh, in the, uh, in the uh, case, um, Ukraine versus Russia. Um, Russia lied about the facts, and Russia lied about the law. And I'm not sure whether you can lie about the law, whether you can lie about um, self-defense, but uh, it's certainly clear that you can cross um, lines of interpretation. And some arguments are not acceptable. And then Russia now claims to act in preemptive self-defense because Western states wanted to, um, I don't know, invade Ukraine or whatever. Um, it's just out of question uh, whether you call it lying about the law or whether you call it nonsense. It's just not part of a, of a rational discourse. Yeah, and um, therefore I think uh, the norms and the exceptions are um, important, and they have limits of interpretation, and uh, they can be used and they can be misused. And in the case of um, Ukraine, they have been misused by Russia. Um, my second um, point would be, um, and I come back on your uh, main argument of a humane war, and um, I. I have to say that I agree that, especially in democratic states, you certainly not only need a just cause for the war, but also have to be sure that public opinion is on your side uh, with regard to the method and means of warfare. And if you mean this by a legitimizing factor, I would agree um, uh, that this certainly the laws of war are part of this. And um, what will come in the future is uh, the problem of even cleaner wars and even humaner wars um, when we use autonomous weapons, perhaps. And this and one argument against autonomous weapons is that they will be a mean to fight wars even more often and even easier. And this is certainly a problem um, with regard
6: to democracy and with regard to, to peaceful times. Um, so, I, oops, I agree that some of the norms that we're talking about here, specifically, self-defense, uh, but also the use of uh, the uh, National Humanitarian Law, um, they would profit from some clarification and updating, but on the whole, I, I also think they're not as vague uh, and useless mm-hmm. as the US make them out to be. Uh, the US has often claimed they are vague, and therefore, inapplicable in our times, and then proceed to ignore them all together. I, I tend to agree with Matea. Um, we have the rules; we should enforce them. Um, that should be our focus. And uh, we have mechanisms uh, such as the ICC. And I don't. I know that my American friends don't want to hear this, but it would be super helpful if the United States would, would support the ICC a little more. Okay. I can hear that. No problem. Yeah, all right. Um, I know we are a vessel state, so this is (laughs) the. And and also, um, there's a public forum, not just the criminal side, but the public forum. And we should not, and that includes uh, Germany and continental Europe, we should not stay silent uh, next time an aggression abroad happens. And not just speak up when it's happening in our backyard, but also uh, when it's Crimea, or, or somewhere in, in North Africa, or, or when the see us attacking somewhere. So we should have these debates every time, and not just when when Putin is attacking Ukraine. And to end on a more optimistic note, um, Sam, I feel you're very pessimistic about international law in general. Um, it's not that the use of force prohibition has always been ignored. And I'd like uh, you call it. A, a, that article by your um, colleagues, Una Halloway and mm-hmm. Scotch Appear, I think, four years ago, where they uh, made the point that the uh, Briand pact, uh, which has often been described as a toothless tiger, actually managed to outlaw territorial war in, um, and, and made it indefensible in our time. So, if, if you know, uh, the present aggression, of course, uh, of course, is a territorial war. I mean, exceptions are the rule. So, um, if we manage to outlaw territorial war, maybe eventually we'll manage to outlaw, you know, other forms of war as well. So, I don't think we should give, give up too easily.
4: Okay. Thank you, and uh, please join me in thanking Sam, Solia and Frauke, and all of you for a very fascinating conversation.